Hey, it's Dan. The industry is on a bit of a hiatus while I work on some new episodes. But since I didn't want to leave you with nothing to listen to, I thought I would introduce you to a podcast I love, History Daily. So what is History Daily? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a piece of history coming to you every day. Each weekday host, Lindsey Graham, one of the best podcast hosts in the game, takes you back in time to explore a momentous event that happened on this day in history. So whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy, or to celebrate that 20th day in July 1969 when man first walked on the moon, History Daily is there to tell you the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world one day at a time. It's a podcast that I absolutely love, and I think you will too. That's why I've picked out two episodes to play back-to-back right now. And naturally, they are both stories that spawned movies. So first up is The Spruce Goose Takes Flight. That is November 2nd, 1947, where you have American aviator and occasional filmmaker Howard Hughes risking his life and reputation to take to the skies in the largest aircraft ever built, the Spruce Goose, which you may remember also happened in the Martin Scorsese picture, The Aviator. And then we move on to The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. November 24th, 1971, an unidentified man hijacks a Boeing 727 and extorts $20,000 of ransom money before parachuting into the unknown over Washington State. And this story, which has been fascinating people for decades now, it's still the subject of countless documentaries, but really, I think of the heavily fictionalized movie, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper with Treat Williams, where they really weren't concerned with getting almost anything accurate at all. So there you have it. Two great stories from one great podcast, History Daily. So from Noiser and Airship, here's History Daily. Take it away, Lindsay. It's November 2nd, 1947. It's a typically golden morning on the southern coast of California. Excited crowds line Long Beach Harbor, ready to see a spectacle. Underneath a sprawling canvas tent, reporter James McNamara passes rows of clattering typewriters. McNamara enjoys the crackle of his fellow newshounds as they quarrel, flirt, crack wise, and gossip even faster than they type. Today, the main topic of conversation is Howard Hughes, the famous American businessman, investor, and daredevil aviator. Whether or not he's ruined, whether or not he's insane. McNamara and the rest of the reporters are here to cover the maiden taxi run of the world's largest and most expensive aircraft. The H-4 Hercules, as only Mr. Hughes calls it, is a gigantic flying boat designed to be a key part of the war effort. With its huge wooden belly, it can transport large numbers of war personnel and materials across the Atlantic Ocean, providing a tremendous logistical advantage. And just in time, one reporter jokes, seeing how the war's been over for two years. But the Hercules is a sight to behold. A majestic, eight-rotored beast gleaming in the sun and making every other boat in the bay seem minuscule by comparison. Due to wartime restrictions, the aircraft is built principally from plywood. 
and this has led some detractors to nickname it the Flying Lumberyard. But history will remember the aircraft by another name, a name despised by Howard Hughes, the Spruce Goose. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 2nd, the Spruce Goose. It's November 2nd, 1947, at Long Beach, California. On the harbor rim under the canopy, reporters are placing bets. This goose won't fly, one reporter says to McNamara. He'd have better chance of putting the Empire State Building into the air. The radio reporter lugs with him some heavy but portable recording equipment, including a turntable, a large storage battery, and cables. He and his engineer haul it toward where the giant aircraft is moored. McNamara is one of the lucky few reporters who've been allowed aboard the Spruce Goose this morning. And soon McNamara is seated inside the spacious flight deck. Speaking into his microphone, he describes to listeners how the Sky Giant is cruising along the northwest course of the Outer Harbor. This marvel is over 200 tons and has a wingspan greater than 320 feet, bigger than any football field in America. The tail alone is 80 feet tall. But the most astounding fact is the price tag. According to some reports, the Spruce Goose cost in excess of $23 million, equivalent to $211 million today. That extraordinary figure includes $18 million in government funds that the project received way back in 1942 for three of such boats. The Spruce Goose has garnered a reputation as a useless money pit, and Howard Hughes, a shameless war profiteer. In fact, just two months earlier, Hughes was called before the United States Congress. They asked him to explain how he'd only managed to produce two prototypes of a now unnecessary aircraft. Howard Hughes came out fighting. He told the committee members, I've put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation rolled up in it, and I've stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave the country, never come back, and I mean it. Now Howard sits behind the controls of his controversial airship. Today was billed as a simple high-speed taxi demonstration, but Howard plans to give his onlookers something more sensational than that. After all, this is a man who knows a thing or two about showmanship. As well as being a highly successful entrepreneur and inventor, he tried his hand at filmmaking and was, as far as he's concerned, very good, even if the critics didn't always agree. As the director and producer of the 1930 film Hell's Angels, Hughes staged spectacular aerial dogfighting scenes, even piloting planes above the action himself and coordinating maneuvers through radio direction. Later, when he directed The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell, he employed his engineering skills to design a new cantilevered underwire bra, one to emphasize Russell's already impressive bust. The result was too uncomfortable for Miss Russell to wear, but that didn't faze Howard Hughes. He knows what the country wants to see. And today, on November 2nd, 1947, they want to get a glimpse of a great American hero. Howard certainly looks the part. He isn't dressed like a movie star, with his brown leather jacket, 
brown trousers and matching fedora, he looks like the daring aviator a movie star might play on the big screen. But now, inside the hot, king-sized cockpit, he's removed his hat and jacket. He's pushing at the throttle and picking up speed. McNamara, holding a microphone to his lips, looks out the side window. He reports that they're 30 feet above the ocean, even though they haven't taken off. But to Howard, who sits in the cockpit, the reporter might as well be a buzzing fly. Howard is partly deaf, and so he likely wouldn't be able to hear him, even without the roaring of the engines. It's a good thing, too, as McNamara is now reminding his listeners that Mr. Hughes' war contracts are still under investigation. Howard wants to play the part of the great American hero, but there are those in the press who describe Howard Hughes as anything but heroic. They point to the fact that he didn't even serve in World War II and yet made huge profits as a weapons manufacturer. He's a silver spoon kid, his detractors say, who inherited his fortune. He's not some great inventor. He's a spoiled hobbyist, and he's been indulging his own preoccupations at America's expense. But Howard, the idiosyncratic billionaire, has never slowed down in the face of criticism. Inside the cockpit of the Spruce Goose, he presses down on the throttle, determined to show a skeptical world that, in the end, only a fool bets against Howard Hughes. It's November 2nd, 1947. As Howard Hughes presses the throttle of the Spruce Goose, he knows that his entire reputation as an air manufacturer is at stake. If this thing fails to fly this morning, he may have to make good on his promise and leave the country in disgrace. But the story of the Spruce Goose didn't begin with Howard. It was actually the brainchild of Henry Kaiser, a wealthy American boat builder renowned for his line of Liberty cargo ships. Throughout World War II, Kaiser's Liberty ships were mass-produced on an unprecedented scale, providing a vital resource for Allied forces. They transported everything from tanks to troops to wherever they most needed to be. But down in the depths of the North Atlantic, there lurked a problem. German U-boats were torpedoing Allied transport ships as they attempted to cross the sea. It became impossible to get any heavy payload through without risking destruction. The solution was obvious giant flying boats capable of taking off and landing on water and built to carry huge loads across long distances far above enemy subs. And Kaiser knew about boats, but to get aloft, he needed the help of another industrialist with more aeronautical experience. Howard Hughes had already stepped up to aid in the war effort. He wasn't a soldier. His deafness precluded him from serving his country in that way. But as an inventor and military supplier, he could still pitch in. In 1941, Howard devised a method to feed ammunition into fighter plane guns with greater efficiency. And as a result, he'd made millions through war contracts, building an even greater fortune than the one he'd inherited from his father. Howard Hughes Sr. had been the founder of the Hughes Tool Company and made his mark on the world in the drilling industry. And it was evident from an early age that Howard Jr. was going to be a chip off the old block. At age 11, with his dad's help, Howard, a native Texan, had built Houston's first-ever wireless radio transmitter. At age 12, he had his picture taken for the papers as the first boy in Houston to have built himself a motorized bicycle. He was taking flying lessons at 14, and no one who knew Howard at that age had any doubt that something big was going to come from him. But as a teenager, Howard suffered a double blow. Both of his parents died suddenly, his mother from an ectopic pregnancy, 
his father from a heart attack. It was an emotional loss that cast a shadow over the rest of his life. In his father's will, Howard inherited most of the family fortune. But he wasn't merely an heir. He distinguished himself as a highly successful businessman in his own right, setting up the Hughes Aircraft Company. He was so successful that in 1942, shipbuilder Henry Kaiser convinced him to build a prototype for a flying boat that could help win the war. The aircraft was originally called the HK-1, H for Hughes, K for Kaiser. It was to carry 750 troops, despite being made of birchwood rather than metal. However, the development of the craft dragged on far beyond its initial deadline, and the relationship between the two industrialists grew strained. Frustrated by the excruciating slowness of Howard's perfectionism, Kaiser dropped out of the project. Hughes dropped the K from the name. Now the aircraft was just the H-4. War raged on while Howard kept perfecting his new obsession. When the war ended, the aircraft still wasn't finished. The media dubbed the overdue aircraft the Spruce Goose, but in Washington, it was seen as a waste of time, money, and resources. And for one Republican senator, Ralph Brewster, it became the focus of a political attack. Senator Brewster launched an inquiry into Hughes' supposed misappropriation of funds. To have taken so much money from the war budget, Brewster argued, during a moment of national crisis, and to still not have delivered anything long after that crisis had been reverted, was surely profiteering. So Hughes went to Washington to defend himself. He told Congress that Senator Brewster's story, as related here yesterday, is a pack of lies and I can tear it apart. It was in this testimony that he swore before the Senate that if he couldn't get his Hercules H-4 into the air, then he'd leave the country in disgrace. And so, two months later, on the shore of Long Beach Harbor, Howard has everything riding on this demonstration. He accelerates his mighty aircraft and prepares for takeoff. He's ready to show Senator Brewster and everyone else that nobody underestimates Howard Hughes. It's November 2nd, 1947, on the South Californian coast. On board the Spruce Goose, radio reporter James McNamara makes his way to the cockpit. He passes by mechanics, engineers, and the co-pilot for an exclusive interview with Howard Hughes himself. He holds the microphone close to Howard's lips so his answers can be heard over the roar of the machine. The craft has already completed its first run on the water, and McNamara asks what speed they attain. 90 miles per hour, he's told. Howard explains that he's about to do another run for the photographers, but this one will be a little different. McNamara straps in, but keeps commentating as he watches the airspeed indicator. We're at 45, he tells his listeners. 50, 55, 60, full throttle, 70, 75, then at 80 miles per hour over an extremely choppy sea. The spruce goose takes flight. Howard and the crew on board cheer victoriously, as do the onlookers watching from the harbor wall. Howard, did you expect that? asks an astounded McNamara once the goose returns to the water. Certainly, replies Howard in a cool tone. I like to make surprises. The goose was airborne for one minute and reached 70 feet off the water. It flew 135 miles per hour for roughly a mile. It was the only time that the spruce goose ever took to the skies. However, that demonstration was all that was needed to prove Howard's detractors wrong, and in the public eye, it vindicated his use of government funds. The H-4 Hercules, the Spruce Goose, 
is now the centerpiece attraction at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in Oregon. It was originally commissioned to save Allied ships from German torpedoes, but because it arrived long after the U-boat menace had subsided, it never fulfilled its intended purpose. It could be argued, in fact, that the only thing the Spruce Goose ever really saved was Howard Hughes' reputation. Tomorrow on History Daily, November 3rd, in the midst of the space race, a stray Russian mutt named Laika rides a rocket into history. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bond. Sound design by Derek Barrett. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by James Benmore. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. November 24, 1971. A passenger plane flies south over Washington State. Outside, a storm rages. Hailstones pelt the cockpit window. Thunderclaps make the aircraft shudder and lurch. Lightning flashes provide fleeting glimpses of the wilderness below. A churning river, jagged mountaintops, and unending stretches of pine forest. Conditions like these can bring planes like this down, so the pilots clench their jaws and grapple with the throttle. This storm is biblical, they think, as their eyes anxiously flit between the controls and the altitude indicator. They're flying dangerously low, 10,000 feet just below the clouds, but those are their instructions and they don't dare defy them. Earlier that day, during a routine flight from Portland to Seattle, these pilots received word from one of the stewardesses that their plane was being hijacked. The hijacker had a bomb, they said, and was demanding $200,000 in cash and, strangely, four parachutes. The hijacker forced the pilots to land in Seattle. After securing the ransom, he released the passengers but forced the pilots to remain on board, along with an engineer and one stewardess. The hijacker ordered the pilots to take off again and fly the plane to Mexico City no higher than 10,000 feet. The man had a bomb, they were told. The pilots had no choice but to oblige. But now, struggling through this tempest, they fear they may not even make it out of Washington. Suddenly, the door of the cockpit flies open. It's Tina Mucklow, the stewardess. She's been in the cabin with the hijacker. The pilots ask her what's going on, and she indicates he's going to jump. Meanwhile, at the very back of the cabin, the hijacker stands at an open door, peering into the dark abyss below. A look of fear briefly passes over his face as he contemplates the freezing vortex of wind and rain. He takes a final drag of his cigarette to steady his nerves, and he picks up the briefcases full of cash, tightens the strap of the parachute around his shoulders, and jumps. Before he hits the ground, News of the hijacking will already be a national story, and the hijacker, known only as D.B. Cooper, will become an urban legend. To find him, the FBI will launch the longest and most exhaustive investigation in its history, but to no avail. D.B. Cooper, whoever he is, will vanish. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham. 
and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 24th, the mystery of D.B. Cooper. It's November 24th, 1971, several hours before D.B. Cooper jumps out of the hijacked plane. On board a Northwest Orient Airlines flight from Portland to Seattle, 22-year-old stewardess Tina Mucklow prays for a break in the weather. Outside, dark storm clouds rumble and flash with lightning. Violent squalls hammer against the windows. The flight's already been delayed by 30 minutes, the entire flight time of this short puddle jump to Seattle. The passengers are restless. It's these tedious domestic flights that make Mukla question her decision to become a stewardess in the first place. Maybe she should have followed her mother into nursing, she thinks, as she chews her fingernails. If she were a nurse, she wouldn't have to hide her wedding ring. She wouldn't be fired for the crime of being pregnant or for turning 30, as the terms of her employment contract stipulate. Commercial aviation's boom years, the jet age of the 50s and 60s, have reached a giddy fever pitch by 1971. Air travel used to be the privilege of the wealthy few, but by the 70s, falling fares means anyone can take to the skies. Flying has never been so accessible or so straightforward. All you have to do is show up. You don't even need a valid ID. To Tina Mucklow, a girl from rural Pennsylvania, the life of an air stewardess seemed glamorous and exciting. She'd signed up in the late 60s, when acceptance rates for stewardess jobs were around 3%, more competitive than Yale University. But the reality of the lifestyle is distinctly unglamorous. There's some exotic foreign travel, but the hours are long and the wages are low. Making matters worse, the job is becoming increasingly dangerous. Between 1968 and 1972, there were more than 130 reported incidents of a brand new type of crime in America, airplane hijacking, or as it came to be known, skyjacking. The cause of the epidemic was the trade and travel ban between the U.S. and communist Cuba. The skyjackers were primarily Cuban nationals wishing to return home. Such incidents became a common occurrence and were lightheartedly dubbed take-me-to-Cuba hijackings. But eventually, these hijackings inspired other, more hardened criminals to get in on the act. Most hijackings followed the same pattern. The skyjackers would threaten to detonate a bomb unless the airline agreed to pay their ransom. And the airlines obliged, preferring to pay up quietly, rather than risk the airplane, the passengers, and the press. Additionally, they were often reluctant to put safety measures in place, believing that too much security at the airport would deter passengers from flying. Thankfully, Tina Mucklow has not been the victim of a hijacker. But as her mother keeps reminding her, it's only a matter of time. Finally, the skies let up a bit and the captain gives an all-clear for takeoff. Mucklow performs her final safety checks of the cabin, then heads to her seat at the rear of the plane. Just as she's buckling in, she notices something strange. Her fellow stewardess, Florence, sits next to a passenger a man wearing a dark suit and sunglasses. Mucklow is puzzled that Florence is sitting down. That's against the rules. But as she approaches to check if everything's all right, she sees Florence discreetly motion for her to pick up a note that's lying on the floor. Mucklow does and reads it. Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. 
I want you to sit by me. You're being hijacked. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the aircraft, a high-pitched whine turns into a guttural roar, and seconds later the plane is airborne, soaring up into the stormy night sky. Her heart pounding, Mucklow glances over at the briefcase on the man's lap. She can almost picture the bomb inside, like something from the movies, a tangle of wires, a battery, six red cylinders, sticks of dynamite. But the bomb might be a fake, just like the mysterious man's identity. He boarded the plane under a false name, Dan Cooper, but due to a subsequent newspaper misprint, he will come to be known by a different name, D.B. Cooper, and he has no intention of blowing up the plane. He wants money. But Tina Mucklow doesn't know that. Her eyes brim with tears. Then, just as she starts to shake uncontrollably, she hears the hijacker's voice calling her. She turns. He's looking directly at her, a lit cigarette smoldering in one hand. He seems quite unlike a hardened criminal. He seems pleasant, soft-spoken, polite. There's nothing to worry about, he tells Mucklow. But Mucklow doesn't believe him. As the plane hurls through the sky, she hears her mother's words in her head, and she begins to wonder if this might be the last trip she will ever make. It's November 24th, 1971. On board the flight to Seattle, Cooper tries to put Mucklow and the other flight attendant at ease. He urges them not to alert the passengers to the danger. As long as everyone remains calm, he assures them, no one will be hurt. Cooper is courteous and sympathetic. He pays for his drinks with a $20 bill and lets Mucklow keep the change. At one point, Mucklow asks him if he has a grudge against the airline. No, Cooper replies. I just have a grudge. Cooper instructs the flight attendants to tell the pilots of his demands. He wants $200,000 in cash, as well as four parachutes, to be handed over once they land in Seattle. The pilots relay these demands to air traffic control, who alert the FBI. Before landing, the plane will circle above Puget Sound for two hours, giving the FBI agents time to collect the ransom. In their minds, Cooper is a dangerous criminal, equipped with explosives. They're hoping for a peaceful resolution, but if the worst comes, they want to be ready. As the plane descends toward the Seattle airport, an army of FBI agents close in on the landing strip. Snipers train their weapons on the incoming plane, but Cooper is prepared for this. As soon as the plane touches down, he instructs flight attendant Tina Mucklow to close the window shades, taking away their chance of a clean shot. Cooper holds the passengers hostage until an airline official approaches the plane and hands over the four parachutes and money. Then, as promised, Cooper releases the passengers. Tina Mucklow breathes a sigh of relief. But as she joins the others leaving the plane, Cooper stops her. Sorry, miss. I need you here with me. Mucklow is terrified. But she has no choice but to do what the man says. Two hours after landing in Seattle, Cooper orders the two pilots to fly them all to Mexico City at a maximum height of 10,000 feet. Pilot's eyes instinctively flicker down to the briefcase Cooper holds by his side. A constant, unspoken threat. Like Mucklow, they do as they're told. Once the plane is airborne, Cooper asks Mucklow how to open the aft stairs, a retractable staircase in the belly of the plane. Mucklow glances at the three extra parachutes. She wonders, with a jolt of fear, 
if she's going to be forced to jump. But then Cooper tells her to join the pilots in the cockpit. He seems resolute, focused, his mind fixed on the task at hand. So Mucklow hurries into the cockpit and locks the door behind her. Ten minutes later, at around 8 p.m., Mucklow and the pilots feel the rush of freezing wind as Cooper opens the aft stairs. Then, when they stop to refuel in Reno, Nevada, they emerge from the cockpit to find that Cooper is gone. Immediately, FBI agents swarm the aircraft, but they find no trace of Cooper on board. He apparently parachuted from the plane with the money, leaping headfirst into a thunderstorm somewhere above the vast wilderness around Mount St. Helens in Washington. That was when he opened the aft stairs, and it'll be where the FBI begins their search. Thousands of military troops and law enforcement officers comb the woods and trees, but they don't find Cooper or whatever is left of him. Many agents believe that Cooper's dead. One of the lead agents on the case suggests that it's likely Cooper didn't even get his parachute open before he plunged to his death. But as the months turn into years without any discoveries, the authorities will be forced to consider the alternative that Cooper survived. It's February 10th, 1980, nine years after D.B. Cooper hijacked the plane. An eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram sits on a grassy bank alongside the Columbia River. Brian is on vacation with his family in Washington, and he's terribly bored. Behind him, his parents are packing up their picnic, arguing as usual. Despondently, Brian trails a stick in the muddy sand. But suddenly, the stick catches on something. It's a flash of green. Brian clears away the muck, and his eyes go wide. It's money. Three tightly wrapped bundles of $20 bills, almost $6,000 in total. The bills, though, are nearly disintegrated. Brian's family will report this to the authorities, who will cross-reference the serial numbers to prove that, indeed, Brian has just discovered some of D.B. Cooper's ransom money. The discovery will give new life to an investigation long gone stale. Over the past nine years, the search has been extensive and exhaustive. Cooper's drop zone could only be estimated based on the trajectory of his fall according to the plane's height and speed. Factoring in weather conditions, investigators focused on the large area of wilderness north of Portland and south of Lake Merwin, Washington. Submarines scoured rivers, lakes were dredged. The FBI went door to door with composite sketches of Cooper, but they didn't find a body anywhere. But looking for a body does not admit the other possibility, that Cooper survived the jump and that he went on to live a normal life with nearly $200,000 in tow. Over the decades, many will come forward, claiming that their husband or their uncle, their friend or co-worker, they are the real D.B. Cooper. The FBI will take some of these claims seriously. Most, however, they dismiss as fantasy. And then in 2016, the FBI officially closes its investigation into what is the only unsolved hijacking in American history. Cooper is the subject of countless stories, films, songs, TV shows, and urban legends. But the biggest legacy D.B. Cooper left behind is far more impactful. Cooper's skyjacking resulted in major changes in modern air travel, including the addition of metal detectors and the implementation of more stringent laws designed to prevent and punish any future hijackers. Next on History Daily, November 25th, 
1487, Elizabeth of York is crowned Queen of England. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Noiser.